Good morning. We spent the last several weeks kind of marinating in the Great Commission and the, the way the early church lived that out. Spent a lot of time looking at Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, and Acts chapter 2. Today we start a new series. This is called The Kingdom, but it kind of starts right in the middle of all of that. It's, it's in the same era. We're looking at the same people. Uh, we're looking at a slightly different take, but a very harmonious one on that last day Jesus had with his disciples. Uh, we're going to just jump right into this in Luke Luke, I want, I want to make sure you understand uh, one thing. I think most of you do, but just to make sure. Luke wrote two books that we have in the New Testament. One is the Gospel of Luke. The other is the book of Acts. And he wrote both of them to someone named Theophilus. There, that's a whole other story. Different people have different ideas about who Theophilus was. It's not really that important, but it's right here in the first verse. So I just wanted to give you a heads up. He's, he wrote these as an account to him. But let's jump, jump right in. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. Now, these further instructions were the Great Commission. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about this exact moment. But Theophilus knew about this. The church was already growing by the time he was writing this account. All these stories had already happened. So everybody already knew exactly what this was. He's filling in a few blanks. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time. And he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Last week I told you that Jesus wanted a growing kingdom, not just a fortress. Those weren't just random poetic words that I chose. This is an image that you see through Jesus' teachings all throughout Scripture. You also see it in this, uh, the teachings of John the Baptist before Jesus showed up, and you also see it in the apostles' teaching for years and years after. This idea of a growing kingdom is a powerful image, and it's exactly what Jesus was talking about, building on a rock, building on the rock of his teaching. There's a lot of wonderful images in the scriptures that describe God and help us understand how to interact with him better. The scriptures describe him as a loving father, an ever-present help in time of need, a shield, there's verses where it talks about him as a mother hand gathering the chicks around and protect them with his wings. There's all these really cool images. But if you try to like put all of them into one, like it doesn't always fit. If you try to fit a loving father into the image of a shield, it doesn't quite work. There's just several of those if you try to mash them all together. The one that you can actually kind of make like a stained glass image of it and kind of where it all kind of fits together is the image of a good king. You can have a good king that sends people into battle and also protects them. You can have a good king who's a wise ruler and a just ruler, but also a good father, a loving father. You can have a good king who, who protects, but who also allows his people to be tested to make them stronger. It's an image that fits. It's an image that works. And just like there are so many images uh, that also describe us, his people, a family, and many other really amazing metaphors that work, the one that works the best that all the others can fit into is this idea of a kingdom, an ever-growing kingdom that we are spreading throughout the world. So I don't have a picture of Jesus that I really liked in stained glass, but there's one of Mufasa. He's a good king. I hope that'll work. 
Acts 1.4, back into the text. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, at this moment, Jesus is clearly giving them a heads up about exactly what's going to happen. On one level, at the very least, bare minimum, he's speaking very literally and saying, this is going to happen. You knew this was going to happen a long time ago. Guess what? It's going to happen in about a week or two. This is going to happen right now. Get prepared. But he's also reminding them of a bunch of other things. There's no way they could have heard this and not thought back to the first person who said something like this, which was John the Baptist. And he said, I baptize you with water, but after me will come someone who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All the way before Jesus even showed up, they were hearing about this idea. They knew that this was going to come. And both John and Jesus started their ministry with the simplest message of all, and it was just repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So they're reminded of these, the things that John taught them about repentance, about how to live justly. They're reminded about all the things that Jesus said about a kingdom. So again, I'm, I'm not sure how much he meant to remind them of that, but I guarantee you that this, even if all he meant was literally, hey, this is about to happen, I guarantee you this was running through their head. And you can tell it is because look at the next thing they say. Jesus says, you're going to get baptized with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 6. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? This is a sad thing, but even people who spend a lot of time with Jesus to this day, and even his early apostles, his disciples that followed him nonstop, and then, then their apostles because they're sent out, even those guys got it wrong. They really didn't understand it all. He talked about God's kingdom over and over and over again, and they're still thinking it's their kingdom. They're still thinking he's going to physically overthrow Rome and build the kingdom of Israel in Jerusalem. That's not what he had in mind. Jesus replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And once again, clearly, he's speaking literally, this is exactly what happened. He's giving them a heads up. This is what, this is what happened. Bare minimum, he's saying, you know what? It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to spread out. Judea is kind of the county where, or the state, if you will. It's not exact parallel, but you get the idea. It's where Jerusalem was. Samaria was geographically pretty close, but culturally and religiously and many other ways, there were barriers to cross to get into Samaria. And then outside of that was the ends of the earth, just like in the, the, the original Great Commission in Matthew 18, where he said, go to preach the gospel to every single nation, every distinct people group in the world. He literally means it's going to start in Jerusalem, spread out, spread out, spread out till you literally reach every place in the world. So obviously it's a literal thing, but through the ages, many people, and I certainly myself, so I'm, I'm, I hope you can tell this is something I believe, but I'm telling you, this also is just a really logical plan. 
And I, I think there was more strategy to this than anything. Warren Buffett says this, an idiot with a plan can beat a genius without a plan. That's a good one, isn't it? I like that one. But here's the thing, whether Jesus meant this as a plan or he was just telling them what was happening, we're going to use it as our plan because this just makes sense. The logical, the most logical and doable way to go into all the world, see if this doesn't make sense, start exactly where you are and move out. Doesn't that make sense? The first, wherever you are right this minute is where you start. You don't start by going to the ends of the earth. You start where you are, and then you stretch a little bit, stretch a little bit more, and eventually you're able to reach the world. So today, we're going to use Jerusalem as a metaphor for where we are right now. Uh, Jerusalem is going to represent our families, our closest circles of friends, and our church. If you're a note taker and you like to follow along, I'm starting to give you some things to fill in. That's what Jerusalem represents. I'll tell you the other ones. Judea represents the next circle out. The people that you see often, maybe people you work with, people you see every time you go to a certain store that you frequent, people that you know, people it's easy to get to. They speak about the same language you do, look at life similarly. You can reach them. Within a day of travel, you can see these people. Judea is easy to get to. You just have to try. You can reach the people in Judea. Samaria is going to represent the people that are across cultural boundaries. Now, the way America is going, some of you have been through the Kairos course, and there's some other really cool things that are helping us understand how that works. But America is now full of people. You can go to Knoxville, and you can interact with people from almost every country in the world, and little pocket communities that only speak that language primarily, that have different religions, different ways of looking at life. You can literally reach almost the whole world right in downtown Knoxville or at UT. And you can get anywhere in the world easier than you ever could back in these days. So this is a very doable plan. But if we're going to do this, if we're going to spread the kingdom of God, beginning in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then to the ends of the earth, here's something I think is really important. Another, this is just common sense, more logic. Is it pretty important that we understand what the kingdom is? What do you think? I think it's very important. It's very important that we, as we as spread this kingdom and as our homes and the different churches we plant and the different things that we do become outposts of this kingdom throughout the world, it's important that we keep the vision. The American military knows how to do this well. If you go to just about any embassy or any military outpost, especially anywhere in the world, it's going to be very similar to a military outpost just about any place else in America or any place else. Doesn't matter what country they're in, within those walls, within that space, it's the American military. The rules, the language, the, the mentality, the goals, everything is that. that. This isn't exactly the same thing, but I hope that makes sense to you. It's the same kind of idea that as we build this kingdom, we are spreading a kingdom that follows the rules Jesus is giving us. So let's look at some of the things that Jesus said about the kingdom. One of the things he said was he told stories about the kingdom. You've probably heard them. You grew up her, and maybe you never noticed that they started the kingdom of heaven is like. It's kind of like a lot of fairy tales start with once upon a time. 
But not all of his stories did that. He had stories about a lot of different things, but he had a bunch of stories that all began, the kingdom of heaven is like. And one of the things you'll notice is he's not always talking about the same thing. Sometimes he's talking about the ultimate, final kingdom of God. He's talking about when Jesus comes back and heaven and earth are recreated and and combined and there's a capital, whole new golden city, Jerusalem, and everything is totally different and, and God is with us and we're with God and there's peace and there's that kingdom. He talks about that. He talks a lot about judgment day, which is what happens right before that happens. And then he talks also, actually most, about this kingdom he's wanting us to build. And what that's supposed to look like. Here's just a couple of those stories and a couple of those thoughts. As we go through the next several weeks, I'll show many more. And I encourage you to just grab the Bible for yourself. Look through the Gospels. Maybe use a search engine or something. BibleGateway.com, put in like kingdom and watch what happens. You'll, You'll see some really cool stuff. But here we go. These are three stories Jesus told. I think they'll be very familiar that start. The kingdom of heaven is like kingdom of heaven is like a sower that's scattering seed. Some fall on the road, and the birds came and picked it up, never even got a chance to grow. Some fell on rocky soil, grew up pretty quick because of the shade, but then as soon as it hit the, the sun, the rocks weren't shaded anymore, it kind of died off. Some of the seed fell into thorns and got tangled up. As it grew up, it kind of got strangled out in the life. It never went anywhere. But some fell on fertile ground, and it produced a huge crop. So this one's easy. Is he talking about heaven? Is that the kingdom of heaven he's talking about at this point? This means no, and that's the correct answer. Okay? In heaven, there's no more need to spread the truth around. I mean, we can celebrate the truth, but we're not throwing it out there. We're not trying to recruit people to join the kingdom. We're not, and there's nobody going to be failing there. There's no, nothing to get strangled by. Nothing that's going to kill us or kill our faith in heaven. He's not talking about heaven. He's talking about this growing kingdom that he's put in our charge to build. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who had an enemy. Another name for this story, it's actually in most Bibles, I think, is the weeds and the wheat, or the wheat and the weeds. Anyhow, they're both in the story. Here's how it goes. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted wheat, but then his enemy comes and he deliberately plants weeds in among the wheat. So the servants of the farmer come and they say, do you want us to cut out all of the weeds? Do you want us to pull them all out? And, and the farmer says, no, wait a second. Let them grow. We might accidentally destroy some of the good stuff if we get in there trying to rip out all the bad stuff. When it comes to harvest time, we'll sort it out. We'll know the difference between fully grown wheat and weeds. We'll we'll take care of it then. So once again, is he talking about heaven? No. Okay, this is easy. This is easy. Is this one kind of about judgment day, looking forward to judgment day? Yes, and a whole lot about what happens right now. In amongst any group of people that are all trying to follow Jesus, there's always going to be some people that actually don't quite belong. The devil is always going to be putting a few people in there just to stir stuff up. And Jesus says, we're not going to go through just constantly kicking people out, but we will sort it out eventually. That's a scary thought. One more Actually, these are two like one verse long stories, but same image. He said, the kingdom, is like a tre- the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure 
And like a little one-verse story about a merchant who finds this pearl that's worth more than anything. So he sells everything he has and buys that one pearl. Another one is a guy walking by a field or digging in the field. I'm not sure why. The Bible never tells us why. It's kind of a weird story, but it's Jesus' story, so I like it. For some reason, he's digging in somebody else's field and he finds a treasure and he knows how valuable that treasure is. So he goes and he sells everything that he has, gives up the rest of his life basically to get that field and then whatever was in that field he would own and so then he got his treasure. Once again, it's pretty clearly, it's talking about this kingdom. It's talking about that we have to give up everything and surrender. The primary thing that's going to be driving our lives, that's going to be driving the decisions we make, driving the way we handle our families and our friendships and how we treat people at church, how we treat people anywhere in the world, what we're all about is going to be the ethics and the goals of the good king that we serve. Complete obedience to God is the common theme between all of these. It's kind of like another one of those stained glass kind of portraits here. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus gives them. All of them fit in one way or another to a place where everyone is in complete obedience to God. Whether that's where God is right now, reigning on high with Jesus on his right hand. Wherever God is right now and the angels obey him. The place Jesus is talking about when he said to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth. And his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whether it's that kingdom, whether it's the kingdom he's asked us to build now, or whether it's the kingdom that is to come, the ultimate fulfillment of all of that. The commonality between those is the kingdom of God is a place where everyone is in complete obedience to the good king. That's what the kingdom of God is at the very baseline. Matthew 7, 31. Here's just a few other things Jesus said. All these scriptures are in here, and I encourage you to go back and reread those later, but I'm just going to race through them at this point. Matthew 7, 31. Jesus says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Paul writes, Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Again, Paul, 1 Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It is living by God's power. Does this sound like something you guys want to be part of? I mean, you're already part of it, but this is exciting stuff. When you start seeing how it all fits together, when it starts like realizing how exactly Jesus wants us to build our lives on his teaching, it starts getting really simple and practical. Doesn't make it easy. A lot of times it's really easy for us to believe in one thing and believe in the ideal of what we want to happen, but honestly have almost no hope. The comedian George Burns once said this about families. He said, happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. That's a good, that's kind of a good picture of how we are sometimes about uh, how we feel about our own families, our closest friends, or even our church. Is is sometimes we have these, these dreams, these ideals, what we believe it should be. We have absolutely no idea how to get there. This morning, we're going to turn a little corner and just really focus on this question. 
How does God want to build his kingdom in your Jerusalem? How does God want you to build his kingdom in your home, in your closest, tightest circles of friends? How does God want us to collectively build his kingdom right here? In the next couple of weeks, we're going to spread out. What does he want us to do in all these other areas as well? But today, we're going to focus on Jerusalem. John Maxwell wasn't just speaking poetically when he says, family and friendships are two of the greatest facilitators of happiness. Would you read that one out loud with me? This is really cool, but I want to make sure you get these words. Family and friendships are two of the greatest facilitators of happiness. Notice he doesn't say causes of happiness, sources of happiness, they're facilitators of happiness. It's the place where we find happiness. It's the place where if we're actually building on Jesus' teaching in that spot, in those relationships, that's where we actually experience it first and the most. Here's what a lot of people are missing in their families. The idea of fellowship. Fellowship is huge. We spent a whole day on it just not too long ago. But fellowship is basically, it's a unity that's based on a shared purpose. It's not just um, unity because we should be unified. It's not just getting along because families should get along. It's, it's a unity based on we have somewhere we're going together. We've got something we've got to get done. We are building an outpost of the kingdom. We're not allowing this space to be a stronghold for the enemy. And I'm telling you right now, if you didn't hear me, I'm going to say that one more time. I need you to be careful. Because your families are going to be one or the other. Your home is always going to be either the best place that you find God transforming you. It's going to be an outpost of his kingdom. Or it's going to become a stronghold of the enemy. A place where you could experience God in other places. But when you get home, you feel the most broken, the most pain, the most not in the kingdom. And God can transform any of those strongholds. He can take them back. But it doesn't just happen. And this idea of fellowship, this idea of us living with a shared purpose is exactly what the apostles prayed for. Again, you heard some of this recently. Um, John said that the reason they shared all their teachings was so that we could experience this fellowship. Jesus prayed in John 17. Jesus himself prayed that we would experience this unity so that the world would be able to believe in him. In Proverbs 6, there's a really scary warning. And I know we're under the new covenant, not the old covenant, but we serve the same God. He has the same tastes, the same loves, the same hates, the same likes, the same dislikes. And in this list in Proverbs 6, the seventh thing it lists that says God just absolutely hates is this. A person who sows discord in a family. And that means your family... And that means this family. Just a little warning there, just throwing that out. Don't be that guy. So what does God want us to do? 
As we start to turn a corner, let's, let, we're going to look at some very practical ideas. I hope this makes sense to you. I hope you can figure out how to apply these specifically in your home and in your, your life. And also that collectively God is going to give us some ideas about what he wants us to do in this church. But here are the three, three big areas that I really believe we need to focus to build God's kingdom in our own Jerusalem. Number one, we need intentional love. We need to love and teach our children and teach each other to love, not by just reacting to whatever happens, reacting to circumstances, reacting to what other people do, reacting to other people's emotions, reacting to other people's good and bad actions, but that we choose how to act, that we teach ourselves and our children how to live on Jesus' teachings and how, how to actually just do that regardless, how to make the choices that we make because this is what Jesus said. And how do you treat somebody like Jesus said to treat them? How, do you forgive them? Yes. Why? Because Jesus said so. It's, that, it's, it's hard. It's painfully hard to do that. But it's possible with God's power. And it's exactly what he's asking us to do. We live and we love intentionally. Here's a few scriptures that kind of go along with that and this idea that we, we have to start with our Jerusalem. Galatians 6.10 Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially those in the family of faith. 1 Peter Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. Romans So then let us aim for harmony in the church. And try to build each other up. Again, Romans, we should help others do what is right. Build them up in the Lord. My guess is that every single one of us has a slightly different way that God would call us to do that in each one of our families. But your love has to be intentional. We've got to teach our children and hold each other accountable and teach each other to love intentionally. The third big area is kind of actually two. Grace and persistence. Here's what grace is. It's giving each other chances and room to grow. Giving each other chances and room to grow. And the key phrase there is to grow. In the scriptures, it makes it really clear that God gives us chances. God gives us mercy. God gives us love. He gave us Jesus because he wants so badly for us to become like him. Because he wants to give us every possible chance, every possible chance to eventually be transformed into his likeness. He doesn't give us grace as a means in and of itself. Grace is not the point. It's like another one of those stained glass images things. The whole gospel doesn't fit into grace. Grace fits into the gospel. We get grace, we give each other grace so that we get enough chances that eventually we start growing and becoming more like Jesus. Eventually, we start getting it right. Eventually, the strongholds of the enemy become the outposts of the kingdom of God. And we've got to give each other that kind of grace, not just endless chances to constantly sin and violate Jesus' rules, but enough space that we can grow and enough intentionality that we will. And persistence is never giving up on the people that you love. And this is hard. Especially when you're talking about the people in your inner circle because you see them the most. They're going to hurt you the most often. 
They're going to fail the most clearly before you because you're always with them. You're going to be afraid that their failure is going to shine some sort of a light on you because you're part of that circle. You're part of that family. You're part of that church. It's so important that we persist. It's so important that we stick with the people that we have committed to, that we teach our children how to do that, and that we stay focused on the overall mission of growing this kingdom. Our mission is always, no matter what else is going on, our mission is always the Great Commission. So as we wrap up this morning, I want to tell you just a quick story, still about persistence. This is exactly what the story is. You can read it for yourself. It's in Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read a couple of words, word for word, and just tell you the story. Here's the beginning. But these are this, this is that prototype church that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, okay? These are the guys that got it totally right at the beginning. But by chapter 6, watch what happens. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. There were people that, as they were sharing everything and having everything in common, making sure everybody got fed, doing all these amazing things, there were some people that were going, oh, they got more than I got. Those widows get more than those widows. Those orphans get more than those orphans. Start complaining. There's some unrest. Here's exactly what the apostles did. They got everybody together. They didn't dance around it. They didn't play around. They just got everybody together and they said, look, we've got to keep sharing this gospel. We can't be fighting. Let's solve this problem. If there's really some sort of unrest, if there's something unjust going on, let's fix it. This is where deacons came from, you guys. This is exactly where it got happened. They said, okay, how about if we get some of the people that are already serving, they're gonna, that's going to be their job. They're going to serve all the time. They're going to make sure that everybody who needs served gets served. Everybody's like, yeah, sounds good. Stephen was one of those. You're going to hear more about him. But listen, listen to the results. It, the result was way bigger than just everybody getting even shares of food every day. Listen. So God's message continued to spread. And the number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem. And many of the Jewish priests were converted too. This morning as we have a time of altar call, if you guys would go ahead and come on up. I want you to ask God this. What is he asking you to do about this command from Jesus? Seek first the kingdom of heaven and he will give you everything you need. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and he will give you everything you need. In the original context, he was talking about, don't worry, you can trust God. But I believe with all my heart that this applies everywhere. You don't, he's not just talking about your physical needs. He's talking about your emotional needs, your spiritual needs. The power that you need to make the changes that need to happen in your home, and in your closest relationships, and within the community here at this church. What is Jesus asking you to do? If you really put him first... If you surrendered everything, what is he asking you to do? And are you willing to do that? And for some of you, uh, that might include like giving your life to Jesus for the first time. I hope you do. It might include joining this church fellowship. I'd love for that to happen. 
But no matter whether you come forward or you don't, whether you stand or you don't, whatever you do here, I ask you to please pray that prayer and say, God, what, what would that look like for me to put the kingdom first in my closest circle, in my Jerusalem? And I hope and I pray that you dare to say, okay, I'll do that. And if you need to share that, if you need some prayer, would you come forward when you make that decision public? Let's stand, let's sing.